This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 10. Revelation 10. When Jesus breaks the seals and begins to enact the contents of the scroll in Revelation 6, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are turned loose to inflict their various combinations of war and civil strife and economic breakdown and death upon the world. That is not an end time event only. Rather, it is something that has been happening for 2,000 years and will continue to the end of time. Christians are not exempt from this time of tribulation. We are promised suffering, even martyrdom. That's what the fifth seal shows us. But as we suffer for the name of Jesus, Revelation encourages us to pray that God would bring an end to evil and suffering and enact his perfect justice. God has sovereignly ordered his world in such a way that he responds to prayer. Prayer does facilitate the end of human history and the dawn of the eternal age. The Bible encourages us to pray for lots of things, but one unique thing the book of Revelation encourages us to pray for is this, that Jesus would return in judgment and blessing. Last week, we looked at the first six trumpet judgments. Now, because the trumpets use the background of the ten plagues against Egypt, we're encouraged to see these judgments, first four of which are things like economic scarcity and the shaking of earthly power structures, suffering, spiritual blindness. We're encouraged to see that as God's judgments on the unbelieving world, even though we as Christians will experience some of that stuff. The fifth and sixth trumpets are inflicted on the unbelieving world alone. They're spiritual and demonic in nature. And though they may be presently felt, I think those will take place towards the end of time. Now, all of these judgments, all of this stuff is for the purpose of seeing the lost repent. That's how chapter 9 ends, with all these people refusing to bow the knee in repentance and faith. Some people, when they hit rock bottom, don't bounce up. They start digging. But every tragedy, every catastrophe, every natural disaster, every death by cancer or violence or any other cause is a divine summons to repent. Now, these images of judgment are designed to unsettle complacent people, perhaps like those in Sardis and Laodicea, maybe Mequon, Cedarburg, Grafton, Port Washington. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. These pains, these many judgments, are in fact a great mercy from God because he's patient. He gives warnings. He issues restrained seasons of hardship and suffering that are meant to move people to repentance and faith while they still can. Because the great and terrible day of wrath is yet to come. 
Now, this helps us understand this past year. The tumultuousness of this past year is a gift from God. He's issuing restrained judgments that foreshadow a final, decisive judgment to come. He wants people to repent. He wants people to die to self, kill sin, and move towards Christ in faith. Now, just like the seals were interrupted by an interlude before the seventh, so too we have an interlude before the seventh trumpet. Six seals, interlude, seventh seal. Six trumpets, interlude, seventh trumpet. Now, the first interlude in chapter seven basically answers the question, where is the church and all that's happening? What is God doing with the church and all that's happening? And of course, in the first interlude, God talks about how believers are sealed with the name of God and the Lamb on their foreheads. And because of this, they will withstand the great day of wrath that is to come. So the interlude is is shifting the spotlight to focus solely on the church, believers. The same is true of this interlude, the one we're looking at today. It's answering the same question. What's going on with Christians during this space of time with the seals, trumpets, and bowls? With, with God issuing these restrained judgments on the world, what's, what's going on with the church? Where's the church in all this? Because so, if we're living through this, if we're living through the seals, trumpets, and bowls, this time of, of war, of, of civil strife, of economic breakdown and death, what is that like and what should we do while we live through it? Those are the two questions chapter 10 answers. Christians have always lived through times of tribulation. How are we to navigate our way through them? Chapter 10 answers that question. So let me read. Revelation 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it. And he said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour But in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The Christian life is lived in the wilderness. Chapter 10 establishes that and gives us instructions on how we navigate it. We need to keep our bearings. We need to be courageous and fulfill our commission. 
Keep your bearings, be courageous, and fulfill your commission first. Keep your bearings. During Israel's wilderness journey from Egypt to the promised land, God directed and led his people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. It is likely this imagery is standing behind the way the mighty angel is described. Additionally, you got the mighty angel with a face like the sun. Remember when Moses came down from Sinai, his face was radiant. So we've got all this Exodus imagery built into the description of the mighty angel. So if God's using that as the backdrop for us understanding what his message now is to John, what's he saying? The Christian life is lived in the wilderness. If you're a believer, a genuine believer, you are out of Egypt, but you're not yet in the promised land. You're out of Egypt, but you're not yet in the promised land. The Christian life is lived in the wilderness, in this space between Egypt and the promised land. Okay? The Christian life is lived in the wilderness, not on the beach. Now, what does that mean? There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be civil strife in conflict. There will be more fighting in the streets, folks. There will be economic breakdown. There will be shortages and need. There will be sickness and disease. There will be more persecution of Christians and churches. There will be more martyrs. There will be death. The Christian life is lived in the wilderness, not on the beach. In many ways, churches are spiritual and emotional emergency rooms. And together, we together serve as emergency room physicians. When something traumatic happens in a person's life, the church might get a call, the pastor might get a call, you might get a call. It's happened with your friend. What do you notice about that? What we do in that moment is spiritual triage. We're just trying to stop the bleeding and figure out what the longer-term plan for care needs to be. One of the things I've noticed over the years is that when people experience trauma, there are two kinds of suffering they're contending with simultaneously. The exterior suffering of whatever happened, the loss of a spouse, the dissolution of a marriage, the fleeing of a prodigal child. And then there's an interior suffering of shock that it even happened to begin with. When we're shocked by suffering, we're demonstrating we've lost our bearings. Now, we ought to grieve suffering. I'm not calling for stoicism in our response to the hard things of life. I'm not calling for stoicism. We grieve it. We mourn it. But we ought not be shocked by it. The Christian life is lived where? In the wilderness. But you might say, well, how does one guard against becoming cynical, even paranoid, right? That the next tragedy is lurking around the next corner you come upon. Well, the way in which this mighty angel is described reminds us of Israel's wilderness journey, but the imagery also conveys that God is with us. He's leading us. Yeah, Israel may have been in the wilderness, but God was with them by means of pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. You're not alone. You're not alone in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord is with you. 
It is God himself who leads us through it. Oh, I can hear somebody say, but God doesn't feel like he's with me. He doesn't feel like he's with me. You know, Simone Vi, who wrote, years ago wrote a treatise on suffering, she put it well. She said, suffering makes God appear to be absent. Yeah, I get it. You bet. Suffering makes God appear to be absent. But we're being told he's not. He's not absent. He's leading us through it. He's with us. This is, friends, my fellow 21st century Americans, where we need to develop a healthy distrust in our feelings and intuitions. Okay? One of the cultural challenges facing the church today is something called expressive individualism. I don't have time to delve into it today, but the basic crux of the view is that your inner psychology, your inner feelings, intuitions are, dis- intuitions are decisive, and true meaning is found in expressing those inner feelings, intuitions, and desires. Okay. Your identity is what you feel. That's who you are. The route to happiness is attending to the inner being, your inner psychological need. Well, under such a view, (laughs) the Bible is true only when I feel what the words are saying. If my feelings aren't consistent with what the text says, the text is wrong. So if we're in the wilderness and the text says God's with us, but it doesn't feel like he's with us, he's not with us. I have a friend named Chuck, who's a commercial pilot for U.S. Airways. And um, I have a modest fascination with airplanes and flying, so whenever we'd get together, I'd ask him about his latest journeys and where he flew, usually flying up and down the eastern seaboard. And, and um, uh, how, how was the weather? Anything interesting happen? You know, some very interesting things happen to pilots, by the way. You fly that much, something interesting things happen. Anyway, we're talking about uh, flying at night. And flying in poor visibility conditions. And, and you know what? To a non-pilot, that is just the definition of insanity, right? At night, poor visibility. You can't see anything. And you're where? And how heavy is that thing? Um, so I was asking him about that. And, and um, he, said, he said for ex- inexperienced pilots, inexperienced pilots, the most difficult thing to overcome is the tendency to fly by feel, When flying in poor visibility conditions, you can't trust your feel for the plane or the air. In fact, he was recounting stories of countless examples where pilots had done that. They trusted their instincts and feel over their instruments, and it led to devastating results. So when flying in poor visibility conditions, what you feel and what your instruments are telling you may not be the same thing. And in those moments, he said, it's crucial to trust the instruments. God's word is our instrument. It's more reliable than the instruments on an airplane. 
journeying through the wilderness by feel is going to lead to devastating results. Trust your instrument. We're called to walk by faith, right? We're called to walk by faith. So suffering creates the illusion of God's absence in order to test your faith. It creates the illusion of God's absence in order to force your faith. Faith in him and the instrument he's provided. You want to journey well in the wilderness? Keep your bearings. Second, be courageous. Right out of the gate, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. So why the church will need to, to have courage will be clear in the third point. But these verses are telling us how Christians can find courage. We find courage by taking in the splendor, power, and authority of this angel. Who is this angel? One leg in the water, one on the land. Authority over all of it. In the Bible, to have something under one's feet, to have dominion over it. Then this angel gives a loud shout, like the roar of a lion. Now, we've already been introduced to the lion of the tribe of Judah, who was Jesus himself. And we've already seen this angel is robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, face like the sun, legs like fiery pillars. Who is this angel? Hopefully it's obvious. This is not an ordinary angel. In fact, no angel's ever described this way in the book of Revelation. He's given attributes that are given only to God in the Old Testament and to God or Christ in Revelation. This is why I believe this is the angel of the Lord or an Old Testament-like manifestation of Jesus Christ himself. This is who's leading us through the wilderness. Jesus has not sent us an angelic lackey to lead us through these times. He came himself. Now, John, as representative of the church, is about to be given a daunting task. In order for the church, in order for us to find courage to faithfully execute that task, God's given mission to us, we're going to need courage. But here's what I want you to see about the origin of courage. When God wants us to have courage and confidence, he does not start by telling us to be true to ourselves. He does not start by saying, look a little deeper inside yourself. Summon up some inner strength. Believe in yourself. You know, it's the plot line of every story out there. The protagonist is about to take on the enemy, right? Huge task in front of her. Before she jumps into the fray, she closes her eyes, takes a deep breath, and it's as if she looks inward and says, I can do this. That's not God's way with us. He's going to give John a recommission. He's going to say, you've got to keep prophesying some very hard to swallow truths. How does he give him courage and confidence? He gives him another glimpse of his glory. First section of this chapter is devoted to describing the mighty angel, Jesus himself. You want to be able to tackle the next challenge in front of you? Don't look inside. Look up to Jesus. 
One of my favorite stories that illustrates this is one I've, I've told, I've reiterated to you time and again since I've been here. Jesus in the boat with the disciples, the storm, remember it? Storm comes up, professional fishermen in the boat start freaking out. Jesus is asleep. They rush over to him in a panic. They wake him. Wake up, wake up, wake up. We're going to die. He calms the storm. He turns and says, where's your faith? They turn to each other and say, what? Who is this? Do you know that question explains why they reacted the way they did? The question they ask, who is this, explains why they reacted in fear and why they didn't have courage. They didn't know. Do you? Do you? Jesus' entire life, in a sense, was lived in the wilderness. God saw him through it. He saw him through the temptations and the ridicule, the beatings, the crucifixion, to the place he now resides. At the right hand of the Almighty. So if we believe Jesus is with us in the wilderness, leading us through the wilderness, we also know he's been here before and he knows the way out. And if we hold on to him, if we hold on to him in the midst of the wilderness, we will end up in the same place he is now. You hold on to him. Third, fulfill your commission. Verse 8, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me a little, the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must go prophesy again about many people's nations, languages, and kings. The section centers around the angel of the Lord, the scroll that lies open in his hand, and what John's supposed to do with it. He's told he's supposed to prophesy about many people's nations, languages, and kings. He's to communicate God's message of judgment and blessing that is contained in the scroll we've been considering since Jesus lit the seals in chapter 6. The commission we've been given, John as representative of the church, we've been given is to be God's mouthpiece to a lost and sinful world rushing headlong into judgment. Our commission is to proclaim God's word of salvation and judgment. Now listen, the background, keep a thumb in Revelation 10. Flip back to Ezekiel Chapter 2 and 3. Ezekiel 2 and 3. The background to John 10 has already been established in the Old Testament. We've seen this time and time again. You want to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to understand the Old Testament. Ezekiel 2. I want to read this story. You're gonna, you're, it's going to look like you're reading Revelation 10. Ezekiel 2, verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. 
And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I took and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go back and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth. He gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, son of man, now go to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hard-hearted and obstinate, but I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are rebellious people. Our commission, your commission, is to proclaim the word of God. All of it. It's messages of salvation and it's message of judgment. Why does Jesus tell John to eat the scroll? Why does God tell Ezekiel to eat the scroll? Ingesting it certainly connects John to its message. The scroll was external to him. Now it's become one with him. In order to faithfully fulfill our commission of being God's mouthpiece to a lost and sinful world, we have to eat God's word. We have to ingest it. We've got to chew on it. We've got to taste it. And as we do so, we're going to discover some things about its contents and and what it's going to mean for us as we are God's mouthpiece. First, we're going to realize that the word of God is sweet. Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 19.10, they are more precious than gold and much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey than honey from the honeycomb. Honey was the sweetest food available to the ancients. And for my money, you really can't find anything sweeter even today. Such is to be the word of God. We will not hold on to the hard words of God unless we acquire taste buds that can experience the word of God as sweet to us. When you hear the word of God read, when you're reading it privately, I hope there are moments where you pause and you think, oh, yes, that's a sweet word. That's a good word. Does it land on you that way? Does it generate that kind of response from you? Yeah, that's a good word. Oh, that's a good word. And you hear, sometimes you hear people say, and, and maybe I've said this, well, I don't like it, but the Bible says it, so I'll believe it. I don't like the idea of hell, 
or gender roles or predestination or whatever it is, but it's there, all right, I'll believe it. Now, I think I understand what people mean when they say that. I think they mean, this doesn't make complete sense to me. This is not how I would have planned things. This seems a little counterintuitive to me, but it's in the Bible and I accept it. And that's a good attitude to have. But we have to be careful that this is not revealing a deeper heart attitude which has a distaste for the hard words of God. Yeah, God says some things that are hard. He says some things that make our lives difficult. But we're in a bad spot if we find ourselves distrusting it. We should read it. We should take it in. And there should always be a part of us that says, yes, that is sweet. That's good. Even a hard word like the one John has to give to the people. It's still a sweet word. It's still something about the glory of Christ to save sinners. It's still something about the redeemed kept safe. It was hard, but good. We still need to learn to taste the sweetness of God's word in the hard sayings. Second, we learn the sweet word of God sometimes leaves a bitter aftertaste. The scroll is sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the gut. It caused John some indigestion. Why is that? It's a scroll of judgment. I'm sure John was thinking, are you kidding me? You have any idea how difficult this is going to make my life? People don't want to hear this. Ezekiel had the same experience. He's told to eat the scroll. He's told to give a similar message to hard-hearted people. He was commissioned to give them a message of lament, mourning, and woe. He's told to go out and rebuke his own people. And he's given no guarantee of success, no guarantee that, that he'll be able to give a good report, but God will be pleased. In case you've missed it, Revelation is thick with the theme of judgment. It is not unloving to tell people about this judgment to come. Several years ago, there was a video made by Penn Jillette. Penn Jillette? Penn Jillette? Penn and Teller? Illusionist? He, uh, he shot a video of himself. I don't know if a video diary or whatever. He uploaded to YouTube, all that stuff. And, and he was talking about, after a show... After a show, a Christian had come up to him and started evangelizing him. He first complimented him on his show. That was a fantastic show. And then he started evangelizing him, or in Penn's words, proselytizing him. And actually, Penn was, was very complimentary. He's a self-professed atheist. Penn's a self-professed atheist. He's complimenting this guy because here's what he said. He said, I have no respect for Christians who don't proselytize. So I have no, no respect for that. None. And he said, here's why. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and people might be going there, how much do you have to hate them not to tell them? Here's an atheist rebuking the Christian community for not talking about judgment. One of the most loving things you can do is warn your unbelieving friends that judgment is coming. It's a bitter word, but it's one God has commissioned us to speak. 
Third, God's hard words should not be rejected or avoided just because they cause us indigestion and may be bitterly received by others. Take that to the bank. God's hard words should not be rejected or avoided just because they cause us indigestion or may be bitterly received by others. You know, it used to be in popular Christian books, they would say, our methods need to change, but the message does not. I can get on board with that. But now I'm reading in books increasingly, the message must change if the church is to survive. Why? Well, think about it today. People don't want to be told what's right and wrong. They don't want to be told what to do with their sexual organs. They don't want to be told what to do with, with, with uh, the life they live. They don't want to be told that sin angers God. They don't want to be told about judgment or, or there's one way to God. Yes, those words are bitterly received by some and they make our lives difficult. But when have ev- whenever, ever, have people welcomed that message apart from the work of God? Who in their right mind, apart from the work of God, says, hey, God, please tell me what to do. (laughs) Tell me what to do. Hey, God, uh, tell me what to do with my sex life. Hey, God, please tell me, uh, you know, how you punish sin by crucifying your son. Tell me that. It doesn't play well. It never has. If you think you can be a Christian, a faithful Christian, like the one that God calls Jeremiah to be, and Ezekiel to be, and John to be, and people will just hug us and say, thank you for sharing that with me, then we haven't paid any attention to them. We've not paid attention to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, or Jesus for that matter. Follow Paul's journeys, right? Half the people get converted, the other half throw stones at them. The word of God will always be a bitter pill for some to swallow, So yes, we must be winsome and respectful. Yes. But we must understand that this message of salvation and judgment causes pain. We must never, ever twist or avoid what God has said. So here's what I'm asking you. Pray for your pastors. Pray we would not shy away from hard words. Let me tell you something. We've got some tough sermons to preach in the months coming. We've got some tough ones to preach. They're going to give the preacher and the hearer indigestion. But you need to hear what God has really, truly said. Infinitely more than what you want to hear. Pray for me. Pray for your pastors that we would communicate what God has truly said rather than what we think you want to hear. Last, God can give us flinty foreheads. Too many of us have been lulled into thinking it's easy to be a Christian. It's easy to be a Christian. You really think it's easy to be a Christian? If you're being a faithful mouthpiece for the Lord, people are not always going to like you. If you're living faithfully for Christ, you will die and you will hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And there will be some left behind who will say of you, you know, I never really did like her very much. And we're very fragile people. We're easily hurt. We're easily offended. We're easily wounded, easily in touch with our pains. 
Well, don't get me wrong, God cares about your cares, but God also says, I'm not a small God, and my words are true. And you're weak, but I can give you a flinty forehead. You can be harder than they are. And don't just think it's out there, out there, bad, unchristian people. It's here too. When people gossip in the church, when there's judgmentalism or compromise or hard-heartedness or slander or grumbling, you've got to have a hard head in that moment. When you put your foot down and you say, no, we're not going there. We're not going to have this conversation. We're not going to talk about this. And there will be people who go home accusing you, accusing you of being a goody two-shoes and holier than thou. And you can say, well, if thou weren't so unholy, I wouldn't be holier than thou. (laughs) The church of all places can be a hard place to hold to the word of God. Let's be honest, pretty much wherever there are sinners, and there are a few here, they can be a hard place to hold on to the word of God. So let's remember God's words to Joshua and the people of Israel when their wilderness journey was not yet over. He said to them, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be Afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You may not be liked. Get over it. You may not be successful. But God will be pleased with you. And through it all, God's words will be true and right, and sweet. Let's pray. Lord, some of us need to have our expectations recalibrated. We think the Christian life is lived on the beach. It's lived in the wilderness. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go the rest of this day and we experience things characteristic of the wilderness, we would not grow weary, we would not lose heart, that we would be courageous. Not because we've looked within us and summed up some deep inner strength, but we have looked to the unfathomable, indescribable glory and authority and dominion of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would find your church faithful in communicating and being a mouthpiece for you in the world of talking about the lavish grace that's been poured out for sinners in the person of Jesus Christ that we would also talk about the judgment to come. It's real. It's real.
And as we do, God, I pray that we would not put the pressure on ourselves to be the ones responsible for the results. We're simply a mouthpiece. We scatter the seed, and then we go home. The rest is up to you. So we put our firm trust and our faith in you. You, the cosmic ruler of the universe, the author of life and the writer of this story. In Christ's name, amen.